Today, we discuss shocking new potential California curriculum, cancel culture coming after multiple popular figures in society, military advancements from the Chinese regime, and the $1.9 trillion blue state bailout disguised as COVID relief. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal, at the end of the day, of exuding truth and love, conviction and grace in our discourse. Thank you so much for tuning in today. It is an absolute honor to be able to speak with you. As always, if you enjoy this show, if you have seen Refining Politics and Culture as a helpful resource for you and a blessing on your journey as we explore these important topics. Please make sure that you share the show with your community. Subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. Leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Those all help the show grow tremendously. For any other information that you'd like, you can head to my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Friends, we have a lot to cover today, and then I kind of I want it to happen in a sort of rapid-fire format on a few different important stories that are happening here in the United States and then also um, in, in a few countries around the world. So... We're going to jump into it, but before we do, I I released one of the more important episodes, in my opinion, that I've done up to this point um, related to the scope of the atrocities, the dystopian nightmare that the Chinese regime is inflicting on its own people. I released that episode on Tuesday. We talked all about the Chinese social credit system. If you have not yet had the opportunity to go listen to that episode, I know it's a longer one, but please make sure you do that. I think it's really important that we're paying attention to this information. I know sometimes it can feel like a little out of sight, out of mind, but I'm even going to expand on it a bit today and reveal um, just even more why it's so important that we're paying attention to this massive Goliath that is out over the Pacific Ocean, um, across the Pacific Ocean, that poses a, a grave threat, not only to their own people, but also to the world at large. So we're going to get into a bit of that today. Um, here we go. We're going to go through some current events. I want to start in the state of California. And I know I reiterate this often, but I want to say this again, because I really think it's important to stress this point. So goes California. So goes the nation. And so even if you don't live here and it can feel a little out of sight, out of mind, it's really important that we pay attention to what's happening in the state, how we're spending our money, what policy moves the state is advocating for. Because just like we've seen over the course of the last two, three decades, what happens in California generally happens in other states that you'd say, nah, that could never happen here. It generally happens in those states just four, five, six years later. In fact, this doesn't just happen in politics, by the way. This happens in cultural trends and little health crazes. Think about avocado toast. The rest of the country didn't like avocado toast 10 years ago, but in California, it was the craze. Kombucha, same deal. By the way, I like avocado toast and I like kombucha, so this is not a knock against those. What I'm simply saying is that in 10 years ago, you would have told a cafe in rural Missouri that you like avocado spread on toast and they would have laughed at you. Now you can pretty much go to any cafe in the country and you're going to find avocado spread on bread. And so just an example of how crazes that start uh, or that are, even if they don't start in California, but really made popular by California, eventually catch up to the rest of the country. We see that in the little health crazes. We see that in cultural trends. And we also see that in politics. And so what I want to do today is give you this example of where California Department of Education wants to take their curriculum 
and in turn take our tax dollars because ultimately we're the ones funding this program, citizens of California here. So this is Christopher Rufo. He's an excellent journalist that does a lot of exposés uncovering uh, what's going on in sort of the nitty gritty, the non glamorous sides of the news. You know, so much of the big corporate media establishment focuses on the presidential race and what's happening in the White House and what's happening in Congress. Christopher is an amazing journalist because he kind of goes to the to the ground floor and figures out what's happening in the weeds um, in some of the regions of the country or in stories of the country where the media may not find as glamorous or they have some incentivized reason to not cover it. He goes in and covers it. So really cool stuff here. I want to read you this report. Um, and I want to give my thoughts on this in a few different ways. So next week, the California Department of Education will vote. This report was from yesterday, by the way. Next week, the California Department of Education will vote on a new statewide ethnic studies curriculum that advocates for the, quote, decolonization of American society and elevates Aztec religious symbolism all in the service of a left-wing political ideology. The new program, called the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum, seeks to extend the left's cultural dominance of California public university system 50 years in the making to the state's entire primary and secondary education system, which consists of 10,000 public schools serving a total of 6 million students. So to give a little overview here before we jump into the specifics of this. So next week, the California Department of Education will vote on this new ethnic studies curriculum that essentially advocates to decolonize American society, which obviously poses the assumption that it is colonized already and elevates Aztec religious symbolism all in the service of the goal of ultimately indoctrinating students. And this will affect 10,000 public schools, serving a total of 6 million students if this goes through. So let's get into specifics here. In theoretical terms, the new ethnic studies curriculum is based on the pedagogy of the oppressed, developed by Marxist theorist Paulo Freire, who argued that students must be educated about their oppression in order to, quote, attain critical consciousness and consequently develop the capacity to overthrow their oppressors. <laughs> Whoa. Following this dialectic, the model curriculum instructs teachers to help students, quote, challenge racist, bigoted, discriminatory, imperialist, colonial beliefs and critique, quote, white supremacy, racism and other forms of power and oppression. This approach, in turn, enables teachers to inspire their pupils to participate in, quote, social movements that struggle for social justice and, quote, build new possibilities for a post-racist, post-systemic racism society. R. Tolteca Coatin, the original co-chair of the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum, developed much of the material regarding early American history in his book, Rethinking Ethnic Studies, which is cited throughout this curriculum. Coatin argues that the United States was founded on a, quote, Eurocentric white supremacist, meaning racist, anti-black, anti-indigenous, anti-indigenous, capitalist, meaning classist, patriarchal, meaning sexist and misogynistic, heteropatriarchal, meaning homophobic, and anthropocentric paradigm brought from Europe. Golly, that is a lot of words. The document claims that whites began, quote, grabbing the land, hatching hierarchies, and developing for Europe which he he uh, associates automatically with whiteness, which created, quote, excess wealth that became the basis for the capitalist economy. Whites established a hegemony that continues to the present day in which minorities are subjected to, quote, socialization, domestication, and zombification. I'm not kidding. He actually uses that word, zombification. I had to look up what that even means. And it literally is this occult term, meaning like the 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 transfer to somebody being zombified, like turned into a zombie. Uh, so that is that is what this educator would like to teach our children. The religious narrative is even more disturbing. Uh, Coatin developed a related mandala 
claiming that white Christians committed theocide against indigenous tribes, killing their gods and replacing them with Christianity. So this author is actually not even talking about physical violence committed against indigenous peoples now. What he's talking about is theocide, meaning evangelism. So the fact that some Christians came and preached the gospel and converted some people from their religions to Christianity, like the Great Commission tells us to do, by the way, that was Jesus's literal charge for his disciples, and then in turn us to go out and preach the gospel to all nations, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, that they would actually be committed to following Jesus with their lives and turning from whatever way they were following. So the act of evangelism to this author who wants to teach all of California, 6 million students in the, across these 10,000 schools, by the way, is that that is actually theocide. Evangelism is theocide. White settlers then thus established a regime of coloniality, dehumanization, and genocide characterized by the explicit erasure and replacement of holistic indigeneity and humanity. The solution, according to Coatin and the Ethnic Studies curriculum, is to, quote, Name, speak to, resist, and transform the hegemonic Eurocentric neocolonial condition in a posture of transformational resistance. The ultimate goal is to decolonize American society and establish a new regime of counter-genocide and counter-hegemony, which will displace white Christian culture and lead to the, quote, regeneration of indigenous epistemic and cultural futurity. Okay, here's a quick little beef I have with this that's completely separate from the just the curriculum itself. You'll see this a lot amongst progressive educators and those that run in academic circles. They use a bunch of of meaningless, really long words. And here's what I mean by that. There's this um, there's this almost like astute image that you get to carry if you're an educator who just learns a bunch of fancy vocabulary that essentially says nothing. I mean, what what this what this educator is simply simply saying is that white people are racist. What they did in you know, 240 years ago, which, by the way, virtually every other country on the planet did as well, not not downplaying the sins that were committed. We have a dark history in many ways, but I'm saying the world at large has a dark history. So assume that this is a problem that's unique to America's founding is a wild assertion. But his goal is to simply say, not only was that the case back then, it's still the case today. The same racist issues that our country was once plagued with at a time still are occurring today. And there's no difference. We are still colonized society and we need decolonization. That's his point. Now, I just said his point without delving into any pointless vocabulary that makes it sound like the argument has some sort of authority that it doesn't. And that's so often what happens in these academic circles is they use very big fancy words to make it sound like their argument carries extra authority. But in reality, nonsense is nonsense, no matter how pretty you paint it. So one of that little pause there. The religious concept, and this is where stuff gets pretty crazy, is fleshed out in the model curriculum's official, quote, ethnic studies community chant. You heard that right. The religious concept of this educational curriculum is fleshed out in the official ethnic studies community chant. The curriculum recommends that teachers lead their students in a series of indigenous songs, chants, and affirmations, including the Inlakhek affirmation, which appeals directly to the Aztec gods. Students first clap and chant to the god Tezcatlipoca, whom the Aztecs traditionally worshipped with human sacrifice and cannibalism, asking him for the power to be warriors for social justice. I'm going to read that again. This curriculum recommends that teachers lead their students in these series of indigenous songs, chants, affirmations, including one called In Lak Ech Affirmation, which appeals directly to the Aztec gods, where they clap and they chant to a god who uh, the Aztecs traditionally worshipped with human sacrifice and cannibalism, asking this god for the powers to be warriors for social justice. Next, the students chant to the gods Quez Zacalacoatl, 
It's like 20 letters here. I have no idea how that's actually pronounced. Who's Tilapokli and Zipe Totek seeking healing epistemologies and a revolutionary spirit? Who's Tilapokli in particular is the Aztec deity of war and inspired hundreds of thousands of human sacrifices during Aztec rule. So just a little pause here. The Pledge of Allegiance is now racist, but if you sing to gods of human sacrifice, then it's totally cool in California education system. Finally, the chant comes to a climax with a request for, quote, liberation, transformation, and decolonization, after which students shout, Panche Bay, Panche Bay, in pursuit of ultimate, quote, critical consciousness. The chants have a clear implication, the displacement of the Christian God, which is said to be an extension of white supremacist oppression, and the restoration of the indigenous gods to their rightful place in the social justice cosmology. It is, in a philosophical sense, a revenge of the gods, and that's ultimately the goal. You know, you've had people on the cultural progressive left for years say, hey, we don't want you to teach the Bible in school. We believe it's a violation of the Establishment Clause. We don't think that our country should have any sort of blend of religion and state. And actually, by the way, um, I don't think that the Bible should be taught in schools for a lot of reasons. One, because I think school should actually be way more simplified, way more objective, and way more free of any opinions um, related to philosophical or religious matters, or even opinions related to scientific or governmental or historical matters as well. I think education should simply be, here is the scientific method, here is how to reason, here is how to conduct mathematics that are based on objectivity, 2 plus 2 does equal 4, it does not equal 5 or 12 or fish or whatever else you want it to make, it equals 4. Here is an accurate historical account of American history, free from my opinion on the matter, uh, just telling you what happened. Here is the rundown of the United States government, how it operates, Civics 101, not that complicated, and then here's how to do your taxes. I think that basically should be school. I actually don't want teachers teaching kids the Bible. Um, another reason is because I actually uh, would rather not have a 23-year-old freshly graduated liberal arts student teaching my kids the Bible. I'd actually rather have a pastor or parents do that that have years of experience in the scriptures. I think that that is the role of uh, community outside of school. So look, I'm not advocating that we... Um, reject this religious symbolism that the left wants to put and put our own in schools. I don't think that we should do that at all. I think that school should be just pretty much way stripped back. I think the goal is if you're a history teacher or a government teacher and or a psychology teacher in school, whatever it is, my dream is that you'd have a student in your class and at the end of the year, they go through an entire year and they still don't know how you voted at the end of the year. They have no idea your political leanings by the end of the year. That, in my opinion, should be the role of a, a proper educator. So anyways, I... What's interesting, though, is I want to point out the hypocrisy here. There's an entire group on the left that will say we should never have blend of church and state. We should really advocate for the separation of church and state. And yet, at the, then at the same time, they advocate for this religious symbolism used in schools. So it's not a matter of actually, hey, let's not, let's not base our curriculum on religion in general. It's actually, no, 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 we just want our beliefs to be the one that indoctrinate people. So... California parents ultimately should be concerned. Under the guise of equity and empowerment, there's that word again, equity, activists within the public education system have developed the radical new curriculum in order to transform California schools into factories for left-wing political activism. They have recast the United States as an oppressor nation that must be deconstructed and subverted through politics. The curriculum's vision statement makes this aim explicit. It presents education not as a means to achieving competency, but as a tool for, quote, transformation, social, economic, and political change and liberation. 
The religious element of the ethnic studies curriculum, which d- directly appeals to Aztec gods, is almost certainly a violation of the Establishment Clause, by the way. Public schools are prohibited from leading state-sanctioned Christian prayers, so they should presumably be similarly prohibited, prohibited from leading state-sanctioned chants to the Aztec gods of human sacrifice. Seems like a no-brainer. The State Board of Education will vote on this curriculum next week. Any sane governing body would reject it wholesale, unfortunately. Given the nature of California politics, though, the board is likely to pass it. Sanity left the conversation a long time ago. The best hope for opponents is to strike out some of the most galling materials, such as the chance to the Aztec gods, and then devise a long-term strategy to push back against the public education establishment. For now, the activists appeared to be driving the narrative, and they will not stop until they have solidified their counter-hegemony. So... Remember, I talked about this throughout the summer, talked about it earlier this year. The goal of critical theory is to remove any oppressors from society. Who are the oppressors in this equation? Anyone who is white, straight, Christian, uh, and largely America in general. That is the oppressor. And so they will not stop at this until every system that is held by a, quote, oppressor is overthrown, till every person in a position of power that fits the, quote, oppressor category is out of that position of power. That is the ultimate goal. And if they have to sing chants to Aztec gods to get it, they'll do that, clearly. So I'll keep you updated with this story. We'll follow how the uh, California Department of Education votes on this next week. Next, I want to tell you a story. Cancel culture strikes again. Mumford and Sons, Banjoist steps away from band after praising anti-Antifa book. So Mumford and Sons Banjoist Winston Marshall announced he would step away from the popular band after backlash over simply complimenting an anti-Antifa book by conservative author Andy No. Here was the apology he put. Over the past few days, I have come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. I have offended not only a lot of people I don't know, but also those closest to me, including my bandmates, and for that I am truly sorry. As a result of my actions, I am taking time away from the band to examine my blind spots, Marshall said in a statement. For now, please know that I realize how my endorsements have the potential to be viewed as approvals of hatred, divisive behavior, and I apologize as this was not at all my attention, he intended. Or he added, excuse me. In a now-deleted tweet that sparked outrage, Marshall congratulated Andy No for writing, Unmasked Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. Marshall, who had less than 8,000 followers as of Wednesday morning, called the book important and praised the conservative author. Finally had the time to read your important book. You're a brave man, Marshall wrote in the now-deleted tweet. It appears he has deleted all of his previous tweets, too, as the only apology remains on his timeline. Uh, Excuse me, as only the apology remains on his timeline. Marshall's apology was widely mocked by conservatives who accused him of caving to liberal social justice warriors. Over the past few years, No has gained national attention over his reporting on Antifa violence in Portland, Oregon. Andy No is also the editor-large of the Post Millennial. He appeared to comment on the situation via Twitter, but did not mention the musician by name. Andy No, the author, said, I grieve for those who are made to suffer because they dare to read my work or talk to me. The danger of Antifa and their allies is not only their willingness to carry out or support maiming, killing, and terrorism, but also how they close curious minds from independent thought. So, little backstory, Andy No is a conservative author. By the way, he's not like a controversial dude. He's an Asian-American man who simply got famous because he would actually go report at Antifa riots from the ground. Like, he would have his camera, and he would report on the ground in the middle of these Antifa riots and watch the, the violence and the terrorism that was taking place on streets across the United States over the past few years. So that was his claim to fame. And then he wrote a book about his experiences. And by the way, he had been brutally assaulted at these riots. Um, So for the fact that he is viewed in this situation as somehow the bad 
guy is is honestly mind blowing to me. By the way, his book was on the bestseller list. It was the New York Times third best selling book when it was released on the day of its release. So the fact that this was somehow viewed as this controversial writing and the fact that this Mumford and Sons banjoist simply said that he enjoyed the book is somehow this radical crime that is uh, a call for necessary repentance and leaving the band shows you how far gone our society is related to uh, just how powerful the progressive voices are that dictate cultural direction. The fact that this dude is leaving a band, by the way, a band that I really like, which is why I wanted to talk about this story, not only because I think it's a a pertinent example of what's happening in society, but also because I really enjoy Mumford & Sons. The fact that this banjo is leaving because he announced he liked a book that was criticizing Antifa, the literal fascist organization that has been destroying American streets and American lives and literally killing people over the past few years. The fact that this guy simply said, I enjoyed this book is now leading to him being removed from society and removed from his band. He lost his job. We saw this with The Bachelor as well when Chris Harrison, the host of The Bachelor, um, which by the way, I do not like The Bachelor. I think it's literally Babylon in a TV show. But uh, the fact that this dude, the host of it, Nobody even really knows what he did wrong. He basically was trying to defend a college girl because uh, one of the Bachelor contestants because at a time she went to an antebellum theme party and he said, hey, like, let's not let's not completely cancer her out of life for this. That was basically his crime. And he's removed from the show and, and no one will ever see from him likely in the in the public life again. His career is over for simply uh, defending people from cancel culture. These examples feel like they're daily stacking up. And I think it's just a reiteration for us of kind of what I mentioned in my digital book burning episode last week about it is so important for us to speak a countercultural message right now. One that says, hey, if you didn't do anything wrong, don't apologize. Don't apologize for reading a book. Don't apologize for liking a book, by the way, that criticizes violent terrorists that have attacked the streets for the past few years and reports from a guy who was on the ground and actually has firsthand knowledge and video recordings of what happened on the ground. Like, you shouldn't apologize for that. There's nothing wrong with reading that book and enjoying that book. And we should also be creating a a culture of forgiveness for people that actually did do stuff wrong. So when someone apologizes, says something wrong, or repents of something they did in their past, we don't create a society where you're just banished from the public conversation forever. But you can actually have reentry into society. Like, we forgive you. We've all done dumb things. That's the culture that I want to create. So for those that have nothing to be sorry for and those of us that have done something wrong, you tweeted something stupid 10 years ago, that does not mean you should just be canceled from society completely and no one should ever hear from you again. That, that is not the society we should look to create because it sort of turns into one of those things where it's like, well, we've all done dumb stuff. I tweeted dumb stuff 10 years ago. I hope no one ever just cancels me completely from society. Like, especially for us in the Christian world, we understand the reality that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and the beauty of re- re- repentance and forgiveness and redemption in our circumstances. And so anyways, I, I won't go off on this much more, but I just want to say we need to be firmly against this cancel culture trend that is making its way like a cancer through society because it ain't gospel. It's a total mess. It's it's creating um, this society that's completely void of actual conversation. It's just, if I hear an opinion I don't like, you're immediately canceled. That's my advocation. That's, that's wild. There's a lot of people that I really disagree with strongly, but I would never advocate for them to just be banished from public life. So I want to move on now. I want to expand a bit on what I talked about related to China on Tuesday. You know how on, on Tuesday I mentioned um, in my entry to talking about the social credit system, that the the overall theme of our relationship with China over the past few decades has been that we've been asleep at the wheel and they have been advancing. 
aggressively. That is China and our relationship in a nutshell. Well, I want to tell you a few um, concerning stories, unfortunately, uh, related to even what's happened in the last few days. This is a report from yesterday. Russia and China partner up to build research station on moon. Russia and China have confirmed their plans to partner together and construct a lunar research station. On Tuesday, top officials of the China National Space Administration and Roscosmos, Russia's government space agency, signed a memorandum of understanding in order to build a moon outpost named the International Lunar Research Station. So here you've got the the ultimate theme in me telling you the story is Russia and China, two of America's greatest enemies, cooperating together on space exploration. And this is not new necessarily, but it has certainly advanced and out in the open more than recent years. Uh, Another report I want to read you out of the Daily Caller. This is from yesterday as well. U.S. Air Force got its, I'll read the PG version, U.S. Air Force got its behind handed to it in war game against simulated Chinese attack. A highly classified war game the United States Air Force conducted in fall of 2020 ended with Chinese missiles pounding American bases while China invaded Taiwan, Yahoo News reported Wednesday. The war simulation started with China mounting a biological attack against U.S. bases and warships in the Indo-Pacific region. China then used a military exercise's cover to invade Taiwan and launch missiles against U.S. bases and naval forces. The simulation is won in a series of war games where the U.S. loses, according to Air Force Lieutenant General S. Clinton Hinote. More than a decade ago, our war games indicated that the Chinese were doing a good job of investing in military capabilities that would make our preferred model of warfare, where we push forces forward and operate out of relatively safe bases and sanctuaries, increasingly difficult, Hinote told Yahoo News. The trend in our war games was not just that we were losing, but we were losing faster, he added. Whenever we wargamed a Taiwan scenario over the years, our blue team routinely got its behind handed to it, because in that scenario, time is a precious commodity and it plays to China's strength in terms of proximity and capabilities, senior RAND Corporation analyst David Ochamanik told the outlet. Ochamanik attributed China's growing capabilities to its focus on maintaining regional hegemony, while the U.S. is, in his opinion, was caught up in an attention deficit disorder of projecting power and dealing with conflicts around the world. In a Tuesday statement to Congress... Admiral Philip Davidson, commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, warned that China has been putting on an increasingly assertive military posture in its quest to replace the U.S. as a global superpower. In fact, I want to read you a bit more. This is a different report out of Fox News, but talks about similar issues. This was published yesterday as well. U.S. losing military edge in Asia as China looks like it's planning for war, U.S. Indo-Pacific Command chief that I just mentioned. The head of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command uh, told lawmakers this week that the U.S. is losing its edge over the Chinese military. Testifying for the Senate Armed Services Committee, Admiral Philip Davidson, head of the Indo-Pacific Command, warned against an increasing imbalance in the region brought on by China's rapid military advance. The military balance in the Indo-Pacific is becoming more unfavorable for the United States and our allies. With this imbalance, we are accumulating risk that may embolden China to unilaterally change the status quo before our forces may be able to deliver an effective response. China announced last week it will increase its defense budget by 6.8% in 2022, allocating $208.6 billion to their defense budget, a move that has concerned U.S. lawmakers and defense officials. Davidson said that by 2025... China will be able to deploy three aircraft carriers and he expressed concerns surrounding the imminent threat China's aggressive behavior poses for Taiwan. 
I cannot, for the life of me, understand some of the capabilities that they're putting in the field unless it is an aggressive posture, he said, adding that he is concerned China would invade Taiwan within the next six years. That is a concern that I've spoken of very often on this show. And it's it's something I was most concerned about with the Biden presidency is that he was not going to be strong enough in recognizing the desire for independence, Taiwan's desire for independence, in supporting Taipei and standing against the Chinese regime and their desires to completely take over Taiwan. China has condemned international objections to its aggressive behavior against Taiwan, maintaining that the island is its territory under its one China principle, though Taiwan and the U.S. view the nation as independent from mainland China. So while China is actively progressing in the region and is getting more and more aggressive, funding their military systems more and more, getting more creative about biological warfare, they are training their soldiers in an increased level of uh, masculinity and fighting strength. What the United States is worried about is signing executive orders like the one Biden signed on January 25th called Enabling All Qualified Americans to Serve Their Country in Uniform, which repeals an Obama-era policy that banned federally funded gender reassignment surgery. Uh, This is according to the Washington Examiner. Transgender surgery for active military personnel and veterans will be paid for by American taxpayers thanks to this executive order signed by President Joe Biden. It essentially provides free transgender surgery to military members. So American taxpayers will foot the bill for this. These surgeries can cost over a hundred thousands of dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, excuse me. So to recap, The Chinese regime is focused on rapid pace military advancement with the ultimate goal of overtaking the United States as the world's leading superpower in the next few years, not just economically, but militarily as well. And at the same time, the United States is worried about how socially conscious our military is, making American taxpayers pay for gender reassignment surgery of active duty military personnel. And we can't even decide how many genders there are. So we're over here embracing insanity, and the Chinese military is single-minded in their approach to leapfrog us. And if if you don't see that as a problem, I don't know what to tell you, because ultimately, the world is a better, safer, more uh, democratically free place when the United States, uh, the principles of the West in general, lead the world, rather than when the Chinese regime leads the world. And if you would like more evidence as to why, go and check out my Tuesday's episode to see what type of world the Chinese regime wants to create. So... Again, I don't say all this to be fear-mongering. I do not say all this to cause massive concern. What I am saying, though, is that the media is not going to tell you this. The media would rather focus on pushing the military to be more trans-inclusive. The media legitimately believes the greatest threat to the United States is transphobia. They actually believe that. And so when that's their focus primarily... We need to be shifting our sights on what actually is the greatest threat to the United States, to the world at large, and it is the growth of the Chinese regime when we're talking about geopolitics. So I want to leave that there. For the rest of this episode together, I want to talk to you about the $1.9 trillion stimulus plan uh, that essentially is more of a blue state rescue plan. I want to read you this report by David Catrone from The American Spectator. Wednesday afternoon, the Democratic majority in the House passed H.R. 1319, variously marketed as a pandemic relief bill, an economic stimulus package, and the American Rescue Plan. It is largely a wealth transfer from well-managed and prosperous red states to incompetently managed blue states. A mere 9% of the legislation's $1.9 trillion cost will be devoted to mitigating COVID-19, and about 30% will go to individuals in the form of stimulus checks and unemployment payments. The rest, the rest, so the 61% of the rest, will go to blue state bailouts, funding for school systems that remain closed, and they won't even get two-thirds of the funding till 2023, by the way, so this funding is not even pushing them to open quicker, kickback to unions, kickbacks to unions, excuse me, especially related to pensions, new subsidies for Obamacare, and exorbitant financing for innumerable pet progressive projects. 
by far the worst of the bill's provisions includes the $350 or excuse me, $350 billion earmarked for blue states and their crumbling cities. The Democrat Party claims this spending is necessary to rescue them from budget shortfalls caused by the p- pandemic. But except for certain badly managed blue states, there is no real need for federal bailouts. The Cato Institute highlighted this reality in January. State and local budgets are not in crisis. The only Democrat to vote against H.R. 1319 on Wednesday, Representative Jared Golden from Maine, echoed this point in February. While some additional aid may be warranted, the $350 billion authorized by this bill far exceeds the actual budget gaps confronting states and localities. That was a Democrat saying that from Maine. The Republicans have consistently made the same argument, of course. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican from Iowa, put it as follows last week. She said, we have the good people of Iowa being asked to support blue state bailouts. She went on to point out which states will receive the majority of the money. Chuck Schumer's state of New York and Nancy Pelosi's state of California. This comment was made pursuant to what the Republicans have dubbed the Schumer substitute, an 11th hour amendment to the formula that determines which states get how much of the $350 billion. Senate Democrats changed the formula to reward badly managed blue states. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, explains at Fox News. Previous COVID relief was distributed to states based on population, which ensured a level playing field. For purely partisan reasons, this bill uses unemployment numbers to determine final state payouts and rewards failing blue states with the tax dollars of red states whose jobless rates didn't spike as dramatically. Under this new formula, our home state of Tennessee will lose $164 million. Meanwhile, New York, New Jersey, and California will walk away with a combined gain of almost $9 billion. Perhaps even more infuriating for the voters themselves than the blue state bailouts is the provision of H.R. 1319 that allocates $129 billion for the public school systems, purportedly to pay for infrastructure changes that will allow them to reopen safely, but Few parents of K-12 through children will fall for that line, of course, because last year's relief bills allocated $67 billion to the schools, and a lot of that money was never spent. Not only that, again, like I mentioned, two-thirds of these finances for the the public school system will not actually be given to these schools until uh, 2023 and after. So they're not this, these funds aren't actually any sort of incentive structure to open up schools quicker. The Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan entity, by the way, estimates that only about 5% of the new money will be spent in 2021. In fact, most of it's allocated for 2022 through 2028. This is obviously ransom money for the teachers unions, who believes they'll release their hostages with no new demands. Not me, because obviously we have seen that the demands keep stacking up from the teachers unions over the last year. In addition to the blue state bailouts and the ransom payments to teachers unions, H.R. 1319 also forces taxpayers to pay for an $86 billion bailout for private union pensions. As the New York Times phrases it, tucked inside the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill is an $86 billion aid package that has nothing to do with the pandemic. Even the New York Times is admitting that. The $86 billion bailout props up about 185 union pension plans that are on the verge of collapse. So rather than allow for the, ex- the failures of the unions to be exposed, here, we'll just use taxpayer money, we'll label it COVID relief, and we'll give it to these pensions, uh, these unions that have completely failed uh, workers and have failed as institutions in general, and we'll, we'll prop them up so that they can continue looking like they're working, even though it's very clear, and even the New York Times acknowledges it here, that they're not. The provision does not require the plans to pay back the bailout. Wonderful. H.R. 1319 inevitably includes new subsidies for Obamacare, which will accelerate health inflation and add to unsustainable health costs. Brian Blasey, PhD of the Galen Institute, writes, 
The legislation being proposed by congressional Democrats to boost spending on the Affordable Care Act reveals that the law has severely underperformed expectations. Even worse, the proposed expansion recklessly boosts federal subsidies for health insurance in a way that exasperates tax inequities, substantially replaces private spending with government spending, reduces incentives for work and productivity, and significantly adds to already unsustainable family and government health care expenditures. A brief list of progressive pet projects also found in H.R. 1319 includes $570 million for 15 weeks of paid leave for federal workers, $270 million for the National Endowment of the Arts. Why is that needed right now? No one knows. $200 million for museum and library services, $91 million for outreach to student borrowers, whatever that means. Outreach is in quotes there. $50 million for environmental justice grants ad infinitum. Is H.R. 1319 a relief bill, a stimulus package, or a rescue plan? Nope. It is a scheme to redistribute wealth from red to blue states. And so the reason I really want to highlight the story today, I've gotten the question a lot over the last few years as people have witnessed the mismanagement taking place in their states, like mine here in California. Like, how do they keep getting away with it? Don't people, don't voters recognize how broken the system is? Like, how, how does Gavin Newsom get to do what he keeps on doing and just tank the state and, and seem to face no repercussions for it? How do these states get to get away with this? And my answer has been, just wait and watch. I bet you the federal government will bail them out. I bet we will see a massive bailout that takes place to cover up the failures of some of these institutions that they've propped up for years. So if the unions are failing, no problem. We'll bail them out with federal taxpayer money and continue to enable their dysfunction, and voters won't know any difference. Because it, it won't appear like it's in the drastic mess that it is. How? Well, it's because you actually bailed them out. Same with California. San Francisco is receiving $600 million. San Francisco's been in shambles long before the pandemic. So when we say, oh my goodness, how could San Francisco continue to exist as a city without people understanding how messed up it is? Well, no problem. The federal government will step in and bail them out. By the way, there's more that's in this bill. $50 million for Planned Parenthood, $1.5 billion for Amtrak, another $12 billion for foreign aid. It's packed with pointless pork that continues to enable dysfunctional systems and voters won't recognize any different because... We, we're, we're asleep at the wheel as a country. We're a nation of uninformed voters that don't really pay attention other than every four years in the election cycle. So we'll see the unions, we'll see these institutions continue to exist with, while we're shielded from the true devastation that has been inflicted by these institutions. How are we shielded from it? With our own tax dollars. It's an incredibly manipulative system. And we cannot just keep printing money like this to enable dysfunctional systems. We should actually rather let these cities uh, feel the impacts of their own dysfunction so that they'll start to vote differently. We cannot just have the federal government continue to bail out broken systems because then people won't recognize the depravity. They'll continue to vote for the same people that broke it in the first place. And then they'll continue to be the ones that actually pay for the enabling of the broken systems. It's the manipulation of uh, Congress, the manipulation from Congress to the American people to the umpteenth degree. So I really wanted to point that out because I think Americans deserve better. We deserve to know where our money is being spent. This is not a COVID relief bill. That is a tiny percentage of what is in this bill. So 
With all that said, we've covered a lot today. We went rapid fire through a few different topics. It has been an honor to speak with you all today. I'm really thankful that you joined me on this episode. As always, if you enjoy this content, make sure that you share the show with your community, subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. I hope and pray that you all have a fantastic weekend full of God's blessings for you and your family and your community. Cannot wait to speak to you all on Tuesday. We're going to have a great week of episodes next week. I'm excited for some of the topics we are going to cover. With all that said, thanks for joining me. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.